tonight, I really want us to not just recognize our power as a voting block, but recognize our collective power period, affirm it, and most importantly, wield it. Hey there, my name is Adam Davis and I want to welcome you to season two of The Detour, a show by Oregon Humanities about people and ideas. When we say that this is a show about people and ideas, we mean that The Detour explores how ideas come to life in people and how people live and think about this living. And once you start thinking about people and ideas, you can't help but think about people living together, which is almost never simple or easy or easily shaped by even the most carefully formed ideas about how people should live together. Let me just say that one more time. Lots of people have lots of ideas about how people do and should live together. But still, the actual ways we live together often seem to exceed or fall short or somehow defy many of the ideas that have made their way to the page, the podium, or the pulpit. That's why we want to start season two of The Detour with a few episodes that explore organizing. And not just any organizing, but community organizing. What does it mean to organize community? Is it something all of us do whether we mean to or not? Or is it something more technical than that? Something that experts do to the rest of us, often with their sleeves casually rolled up? If it is in fact possible to organize people or communities, can we learn what it takes to organize people well? Or to organize for the good? Given how difficult this is, it may also be worth asking why anyone would want to get into this frustrating and possibly doomed business of trying to understand and practice community organizing in the first place. With these kinds of questions in mind, we're happy to kick off season two of The Detour by talking with Hari Han, who has been immersed for decades in a wide range of efforts to understand and help all sorts of people get involved in governing themselves. Right from the start, Hari gets us thinking about opportunities and barriers to participating in self-governance. She also helps us think about the close relationship between organizing and belonging, a theme that gets developed further in the second part of this episode by Bruce Poinsett, Marcus Legrand, Joy Elise Davis, and Keith Jenkins, four black Oregonians who have been working on community organizing in different parts of the state amid a complex set of conditions. This first episode of the Detour's second season is rooted in theory and practice, ideas and people. And here's Hari, who joined us for an online Consider This Conversation in February of 2021 to get us going. Hari, it's good to see you and to have you join us here. And I want to ask about how your life became one that put participation and democracy at its center. Like, well, there are so many things you might have been doing or studying. How, how did you come to care about that stuff? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, so I actually grew up in a family that was very apolitical. So politics wasn't something that we talked about at the dinner table. It wasn't something I thought about or really had any awareness of. Um, but my, I grew up as a daughter of Korean immigrants in Texas, in Houston, Texas. Um, you know, I think growing up as a daughter of immigrants in Texas, um, so much of what I saw was not my parents getting involved in public life, was, but was about them trying to figure out what it meant to raise a family in the United States. So they had grown up mostly in Korea. My dad's family were refugees from North Korea to South Korea during the Korean War. Our family had experienced, you know, the split um, that happened to so many families um, in Korea at the time. And then they eventually migrated to the United States. And it was this whole new place at the time because... When they migrated in the early 1970s, Korea was basically a developing economy. So they showed up with a proverbial $100 in their pockets and had to figure out how to make it in the U.S. And so, so much of watching my parents do that, I think, taught me this lesson, not because anyone told it to me, but because I just um, experienced it, which is the idea that transformation is a fundamental part of what we do as humans, that we try to remake ourselves, to remake our families, to remake the world around us. And I think that notion of transformation was so baked into how I saw the world that when I got to college and got involved in student activism, I began to see 
politics and activism as a vehicle for transformation. And that's what really spoke to me. I don't know if I could have put the words on it at the time initially, but I think that's what was really resonant and and where I felt the calling. And the other thing I'll, I'll just sort of add to it from that story is that I think growing up as the daughter of immigrants and then the granddaughter of refugees, I had grew up with this notion that democracy itself is very fragile. And I think that, you know, for people who've only grown up in the United States or have always lived in a very stable democracy, you kind of forget that the systems that we have that operate in the background of our lives are actually something that need to be protected. And I think that was just hearing the stories from my grandparents was that was something that was always very resonant for us growing up. It's interesting. I mean, maybe it's good news that it's it's hard to take for granted how fragile democracy is right now, even in this country. I think we're close enough to feel that really all the time. The arc that you're sort of pointing to a few generations back and then mm-hmm. as a way of explaining why you might have moved towards participation in democracy. Now, in in your book, Move to Action, you also talk about the phrase is triggering events. Uh-huh. Which is, first of all, it's an interesting phrase because triggering has become such a different sort of word. I think you meant it as positively triggering, triggering us right. towards participation. And right. was there an event like that for you that kind of catalyzed involvement? Yeah. Um, so that book was published in 2009. And so the word trigger wasn't, didn't have quite the same connotation back then that it does now. And of course, I couldn't have anticipated at the time how it would yeah. change. But I think the idea is exactly what you said, this idea that there are these like, catalytic moments where our imagination begins to open up in a different way. And I think for me, it really came in college when I was involved in a student organization you know, that actually was, we got into an argument with the university that, you know, where the university wanted to exert more control over a student organization that was out there doing all this work in Boston. I did my undergraduate work at Harvard. And um, as a student organization, we, of course, wanted to maintain our own autonomy. So it's not an unfamiliar, I think, struggle between students and and universities. And we decided that um, in order to try to have our voices heard, we were going to organize a big protest in Harvard Yard. And so we were just a bunch of, I don't know, 19, 20 year olds at the time. And I thought, we're going to get 5,000 people out in Harvard Yard. We're just going to do it, you know? And I thought it would just happen like that. And some people said, well, you know, maybe, maybe you should like take this class on political organizing. <laughs> so that's what brought me to the class, not because huh. I was necessarily looking for it, it was because someone advised that me that maybe I should learn something about what we're, what it is that we're actually trying to do. And that there's actually a discipline around it and people who thought about how you do this work. And also that I could get course credit for this <laughs> project that I was <laughs> undertaking. And so all those things seemed like a total win-win for me. But then it turned out that it was just this mind-opening experience because I think that what happened in the class is that I realized, you know, for people that are thinking about organizing as a vehicle for social change and a vehicle for people to be able to realize their voice yeah. in public life, like there is a whole analysis that people had around all these things that I had experienced as you know, a non-white child of immigrants in Texas growing up that I had never really questioned. It had always just was, that was just how life was. Like mm-hmm. I never really questioned that, you know, all these experiences that I had, but I think it sort of made me see a lot of things in a new light. It's- so there's so much in that example, including what you just came back to, which is voice and mm-hmm. the sense maybe of being a little outside. But what's interesting is that in, even in your example, the sort of catalytic event uh, has to do with autonomy too. Mm-hmm. Like, w- what do you mean we can't do this? Uh, or shouldn't we be recognized for doing this a little more? And um, I wonder if you can remember uh, not the thoughts you were having in that, but the feel, like, what did it feel like to get involved then in that way? And I, and I really do want to push on the feeling for a minute. Yeah. You know, so I was I was still very young then. And um, I think that I mean, it's it's almost like it's that feeling of having something awaken inside of you that you didn't even know needed to be awoke, woken <laughs> in, in a way. So there are a couple things. First, I was I obviously wasn't doing this alone. I was doing this with a group of other student leaders. And so the social and emotional bonds mm-hmm. that we had between us were really important um, in that moment because these are my friends. You know, I remember 
you know, there are so many ups and downs in this conversation with the university. We were meeting with the dean of students regularly and the dean of students was trying to tell us we had to do these things. And we were saying we didn't want to do them. And, you know, but we were just little undergrads in this school, in this big, massive university. And so when we said, no, thank you, like we didn't really have any ground on which to stand in saying that. But then having friends on whose shoulders you could cry and who would hearten you in those moments of um, despair, I think were, were really important. And I think <laughs> the feeling that the feeling of hope that there was something that we could do was really important as well. I didn't think about this necessarily at the time, but one of the things that I've thought about a lot since then is this question of how do you move people from being consumers of politics to actual agents within it? You know, and I think that word autonomy that you use is a fundamental part of that idea of becoming someone who feels like I can put my hands on the levers of change. And I never considered that before until that very moment. You could say there's a discipline around organizing. Is organizing as you hear it, is organizing a lefty word or a lefty thing? That's a really good question. So I hear people use organizing in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I feel like the word has has gotten so broad in the mm-hmm. way that it's used in, in our public discourse that people use it to mean any way in which people are invited to take action. I'm an organizer if I'm if I go out and ask people to sign a petition, I'm an organizer. If I'm trying to do get out the vote, I'm an organizer. If I do traditional community organizing, um, I'm an organizer. If I'm a social entrepreneur that's trying to get more people to use mosquito nets to prevent malaria, you know, and so in that sense, it certainly has no partisan valence. But then for people who I think about the sort of discipline of organizing as a vehicle for social change, I do think that it is more commonly used on the left but I don't think the practices are different on the left or the right. And so an example that I'll give of that is that I had a colleague, Elizabeth McKenna, who she and I wrote a book about the 2008 and 2012 Obama campaigns. And we were trying to describe how was it that this electoral campaign became like a social movement where it really combined traditional community organizing techniques as President Obama is, is you know, new from his previous career with traditional electoral politics. And that's what the book was about. And One of the things that was so interesting to us is that um, a lot of campaigns on the right began to read the book um, to the point that the Trump campaign actually made it required reading for all its field organizers in 2020. Um, And there was a 22 question quiz they had to answer about the book before they were allowed to go out into the field. Trump campaign organizers had to read the book that you and Elizabeth McKenna wrote about Obama's organizing. Exactly. You know, and so in that sense, like the, you know, the book was about organizing, like we talk about it. And that's the word that we use throughout the book. And it was about a, a partisan campaign, but it was a campaign on the right that created this quiz, which I still have never seen. So if anyone out there has seen the quiz, I would love to see a copy of it, by the way. <laughs> it sounded like you were pushing us to think about political organizing. It means specifically organizing to take political power in some way. I think my thinking on this has evolved over time. And I think when I first started studying organizing, I thought about it as this question of how do we get people involved, right? How do do we create organizations, movements, networks, vehicles, whatever the thing is that pulls people off the sidelines into public life? And I think over time, as I've gotten deeper into the work, part of what I realized is that there's this gap between participation and power. So just because people take action, it doesn't mean that the institution's to whom they're speaking are going to listen. And that could be government, it could be corporations, it could be the media, it can you know, be any, any range of different kinds of institutions. And so I began to think more about this question of not only how do we pull people off the sidelines of public life, but how do we make it matter? Mm-hmm. And in that sense, that's where I began to think about organizing as not just this challenge of getting people to take action, but also this challenge of how is that work of building a, a base of people put into relationship with leadership and the work of negotiating with the institutions where you want to bring people into the center of, of our politics, of, you know, the economy, of whatever the thing is that, that you might be working on. We call our, I call my research lab the P3 lab because we're trying to understand how you make participation possible, probable, and powerful, right? So people have to be able to participate they have to want to participate and, and, and then it has to, it has to matter, right? It has to have power in the world. And I think, and so I think you're right in the sense that there is like a sense in which it has to matter to me and it has to matter out in the world 
But those, the answer to those questions, I think is interrelated, you know? So if I'm engaging people in a way in which it actually has meaning to, to, to me, to them, then those same people are more likely to have the kind of commitment and persistence and fortitude that it takes to then make it matter out in the world. You're listening to The Detour with Hari Han. Something maybe which I want to make sure we're also emphasizing is that as you've done this thinking, it seems like you're thinking about it most with respect to communities and people who have faced barriers to both participating and realizing the kind of power you're talking about. And is is the analysis that you're doing different when there are more significant barriers or, or are the underlying principles the same? In the work that I've done, like I've, you know, read so much about um, history of social movements, um, you know, both in the United States and around the world and also, um, you know, accounts of organizing campaigns on the left and the right and campaigns that are organizing different kinds of constituencies, some of which have faced been historically marginalized, have been, you know, race class subjugated communities in different ways and others that are advocating for less marginalized communities. And I think there's a sense in which in the same way that we talked about the practices and the basic principles of what it takes to get people involved, construct community around them, help them realize their ability to put their hands on the levers of change and then, you know, negotiate for political power is not different. But that being said, I do think that the barriers faced by people that are coming up against a long legacy of structural racism, of patriarchy, of whatever it might be, it does mean that there's a distinct challenge that it takes for people like that to be able to negotiate for um, for power. And, and I'll give you an example. It's actually not from my work. There's um, there's a book that I love called The People's Lobby from a sociologist at University of Chicago named Elizabeth Clemens. And she looks at the turn of the 20th century. So this is the early 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s. And she asks the question, if we look at that time period, we see that like women and farmers and laborers were all a fundamental part of the progressive movement, right? And at the time, the progressive movement was able to win enormous victories. Like they fundamentally changed the way politics works in the United States. And so that was the first time that we passed a constitutional amendment to allow direct election of senators, right? Um, that was the first time that we um, adopted the Australian ballot and the idea of the sort of secret ballot. And so very basic features of the American political system as we have all understood and grown up in mm-hmm. really emerged in the progressive era. And the question that she asks is, how is it that people who were completely outside the power structure of politics were able to change the very rules of the game by which politics was played, right? Like women didn't even have the vote, Mm -hmm. yet they were like fundamental in making these like very basic and fundamental changes in the political system. And so to get to your point about like, well, how do people who face these barriers kind of get involved in it? They, one of the things that she writes about is a way in which these women had to really fight to be taken seriously, mm-hmm. you know, because, and she has these like, great archival stories of like state legislatures, you know, calling, you know, calling people or writing these letters where they'd say, you won't believe it. There's a woman in my office and she's asking for things, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and they just couldn't believe that women, because all they, all that they were used to was having business lobbyists essentially come into their office mm-hmm. and try to lobby them. And they were all men. But then she found that the women's organizations that were the most effective were the women's organizations that were able to style themselves as if they were business lobbyists, but then maintain their kind of feminist core in terms of the values and the practices that they espouse. And they needed to be able to do that both and navigation between being both outside the system, but legible within the system in order to kind of negotiate for power. Because otherwise... You know, like there are some women's groups that would come in and try to do like a, you know, knitting circles in the legislator's office. And they just didn't, the legislators just had no idea how to deal with them. But then when the women came in and, and behaved like lobbyists, they're like, okay, it's really weird that you're a woman, but now I know how to talk to a lobbyist. That's super interesting. And like the transition from, say, activism to politics, what has to happen there? And is it a good thing or a bad thing for activism that it has to code switch to put it strongly in the way you just described. Yeah. 
So I would, instead of, so you, you use the word compromise to kind yeah. of um, describe that. And I, instead of using the word compromise, I would actually use the word negotiation, right? right? So I think compromise in, in, implies that what you're doing is giving up something that's important mm-hmm. to you. And I think that like in, including in what Liz Clements wrote about in that book, the women were making very bold claims, but they were able, as you put it, to kind of code switch and to sort of present the claims in a form mm-hmm. that the legislators knew how to react to, but it wasn't like they were compromising on the principles of what they were asking. That's how they were able to change the rules of the game by which (laughs) politics was played, which is kind of an incredible thing. So for me, when I think about it, like I, I feel like a lot of times when people talk to activists, there's this instinct to want to push people into a false dichotomy between (laughs) idealism and pragmatism. And I think the most effective movement leaders that we've seen are simultaneously both idealistic in the sense that they're advancing a very bold vision, but they're very pragmatic about what it takes to negotiate existing power structures. The way that I think about organizing is there are lots of doors. There are lots of ways in which people enter into the work of engaging with each other in public life. And there are lots of, and if you're, if I'm an organization, I want to have lots of open doors that try to bring lots of different kinds of people in. Threats, (laughs) Threats, <laughs> opportunities, you know, issue-based commitments, like, you know, people's anger over climate change after yeah. seeing their power go out, you know, like all the different things. I want to have all those doors open. And I think I personally, at least in the research and the data that I've seen, am pretty agnostic. Like, I haven't seen any data that says one is better than the other mm. at the outset. But what does matter is then what happens once people are in the door, <laughs> you know, and and once people are in the door, I think organizations vary a tremendous amount in the way in which they engage people and whether or not, and, and those early experiences turn out to be very predictive of whether or not people stay engaged for the long haul or not. So a lot of organizations focus a lot on those open doors and less on the experience after people walk in that door. But those open doors only get it's like they're kind of the net. But then the real engine of activism over time is going to be the experiences that people have once they're through those doors. And what makes the experience once they're through the open door? What what gets them to stay with it? You know, so I think social bonds matter a lot, as it turns out. Right. So on a Tuesday night, right, if I'm trying to decide, am I going to tune into this thing with Oregon Humanities or I'm going to kick back and have a beer and watch Netflix? Right. Then, like, what is it going to what's going to keep me going? Well, I may be very committed to the issue, but what we find on in aggregate is that usually it's because I really don't want to let my friend Adam down, Mm. you know, that like, I'd really rather sit and drink that beer and watch that, you know, watch that movie. But like when Adam asked me, like, what'd you think? I'm going to be a little bit that he's going to be disappointed. I don't want to let my friend Adam down. Right. And so it's those social ties that really matter and kind of keeping people involved in the long haul. And then they become really important when the organization gets challenged in some way. So Mm. if you look at the history of, of social movements, like there's lots and lots of idiosyncrasies across them, right? But one thing that's cha- that's very common across them is that every single time one of them got challenged, they all got challenged at some point, you know? So there's never a, a social movement in the history of Amer- in, of humankind <laughs> where they tried to like topple political power and political power is like, sure, come right in, you know, and, and just like let them walk through the door, right? So when they get challenged, then what happens? Well, are your people going to stick with you? What happens if you have to twist strategy a little bit? You have to pivot the kind of policy that you might be advocating for. Maybe you're going to advocate for a different kind of candidate. There's there's all sorts of flexibility that people have to have. Mm-hmm. And that flexibility, again, is born through like a latticework of relationships that people have that keep them connected to each other or not. You know, that's mm-hmm. what gives that's what gives movements a kind of flexibility to be able to bend with changing political circumstances. It feels like there's at least two things going on here. One is it sounds like the advice to any organizing group that wants to be effective is right from the start, think about belonging. Think about how important that sense of we is, mm-hmm. which not only do I understand, but like I find myself like six years ago at an Oregon Humanities discussion program, I remember a participant saying his uncle had told him always first the gathering, then the topic. Mm -hmm. So like, let's eat food together. Let's laugh with each other. Then we'll talk about the thing. And the Mm -hmm. thing will only matter if we have that other stuff. So in in one way um, I go, couldn't agree more. It makes total sense to me that belonging should precede belief. Right. And as I sit with it for even a second, I start to get nervous. Mm -hmm. 
because that also sounds like the groundwork for all sorts of potentially dangerous things. Yeah. So how do you deal with that side of it? Yeah, so I think that's a really important question, right? Because part of what we're seeing right now um, is, you know, when you pull people into belonging so that their judgment becomes clouded, you know, um, that it can actually become anti-democratic. And, and, and yeah. here I mean like small d democracy, not, yeah, not de- right. democratic in a partisan sense, right? In a lot of ways. And so how do we promote belonging in a way that is pro-democratic? And the question that I would kind of think about is how do you create an organization that helps people feel like they belong, but then also promotes small d democratic values like pluralism, tolerance. And to me, so much of that is is about the extent to which the organizations themselves are bridging different kinds of difference. And so when I create a community of belonging around people that have a very diverse set of experiences, it's very hard to force that entire community into, you know, some mono, mono ideological kind of view. And I think that's the kind of thing that, you know, as, as we sort of see the proliferation of people's echo chambers and the kind of yeah. increasing separation of the kind of social communities that we're in, though, that's the kind of danger that we're beginning to see emerge in different ways. Ari Han is a professor, author, and the director of the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Now we want to turn from the conversation with Hari in early 2021 to a more recent conversation in late 2022 at the Alberta Rose Theater in Northeast Portland that Bruce Poinsett arranged and moderated to kick off our current Consider This series on people, place, and power. Bruce is one of three 2022 Oregon Humanities Community Storytelling Fellows, and he's also a lifelong Oregonian who has poured a lot of work and thought into trying to understand what it takes to shape a community that has, in many ways, been inhospitable to black people. Practically and psychically, what does it take to belong and get organized in a place where so many doors have been closed or hidden? By the way, Bruce was a co-host of last month's episode that explores the relationships between black native Oregonians and transplants. If you haven't already, please check it out. Bruce is joined by Joy Elise Davis, the president and executive director of Imagine Black, an organization that works to help Oregon's black community imagine the alternatives they deserve and build political participation to achieve those alternatives. It's also one of the first Black-led and Black-serving political 501c4s. She's joined by Keith Jenkins, Imagine Black's field and organizing director, and Marcus Legrand, the Afrocentric program coordinator and professor of business and human development at Central Oregon Community College, who also serves on the board of the Bend Lapine School District. When I think about the conversation around politics and black people in Oregon. I think the reason why we're here tonight, the reason why I'm certainly doing this is because the conversation is often so reactionary. It's, you know, get out the vote a month before the vote. It's (laughs) a response to get out the vote by saying, why should we vote at all? The system is corrupt a month before the vote. It's, you know, responding to all various forms of white supremacist terror, be it the most physical and obvious to just what we see in school board meetings, city council meetings, haranguing people about the dangers of CRT and all this craziness. But tonight, I really want us to not just recognize our power as a voting block, but recognize our collective power period, affirm it, and most importantly, wield it. So with that, we have three organizers with us. That's, kind of, that's where I want to start, because I've gotten to know all three of you through various different organizing work, you come representing different parts of the region, Ashland, Ben, Portland, not to mention what brought you all to Oregon to begin with. So there's a lot of perspective here. Let's start off with that organizing aspect. 
we talk about office, we talk about legislation, but there's also the matter of just like meeting people where they're at. Mm. We're trying to bring people into the room. We're trying to get people engaged, show people that we are really invested in them, that we're really fighting for them, that we're there to take care of them. And I'm bringing this to Joy Elise because I think something that I really, I like that Imagine Black does is like that nuts and bolts support of people just to do things like coming to meetings and you know providing things like you know like a Grubhub gift card for you know attending the meeting, doing focus groups, doing these small like non you know these non glorified things that are very important. So yeah, you just talk about the importance of that yeah. and uh, maybe talk a little bit more about what Imagine Black does when it comes to kind of like that. Uh, yeah, that just in between and providing for people aspect. Yeah, I'll um, I'll start there. Uh, we strongly believe that Black people are experts, and they should be treated as such. And um, and I, we know it may not always be possible to um, give the 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 amount of resources that they deserve to be at the table. Like we we can hold kind of both things at the same time, but. Um, we believe in giving gift cards to folks to show up. We believe that when you're consulting on something for the city, like a focus group, you need to be compensated. You need to make sure that you can um, hire or pay someone in your family to take care of your child, that you have a lift code, maybe because you don't feel safe taking TriMet in your neighborhood. Like there's so many things and it really is a privilege to be able to show up um, without support. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all need support and uh, we need spaces where we're valued and we're appreciated. We also believe in visioning. We know this work is the long haul. We know there's ups and downs. We know that we're fighting towards a vision that we've never seen. We're moving towards black liberation and that's hard for folks to realize. So we try to imagine with them, we try to dream with them, we try to have conversations that allow for them, again, to shape their environment. I think uh, self-determination is all about shaping your environment, to really have that power. And it's, it's really disappointing when we work with the city or other folks who think that it's disrespectful to give someone a stipend or they think it's ridiculous to put budget in there for food and childcare and everything else that folks need because we're meeting over Zoom as if you know, bills aren't bills. Um. <laughs> I just want to say that um, here's Keith Jenkins. After receiving that gift card, I kind of feel like I got to show up as my best authentic self and give you everything I got because you, you're, you're extending the olive branch to me, so I got to show up for you. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're taking care of me. I don't have to worry about what I'm about to eat right now, so I'm about to give you my undivided attention and give you everything I got on the subject that we're speaking of because that's all you want. All you want is me. And so I'm going to bring that. What does it mean to actually hold politicians, hold institutions accountable to black people and to not just the black community, but black communities and all the different people that represent black populations that make up Oregon? So I know, you know, one example, at least of a tool that you know, is going to be put into place is Again, with Imagine Black, I know you are rolling out the uh, no police money pledge. You know, we talked about defunding earlier. Uh, can you talk about what that is and why, uh, yeah, how it works as an accountability tool? Yeah, thank you so much for the question. Um, I'm sure folks remember years ago when there were all these pledges to stop, for politicians to stop taking money from fossil fuel companies. And there was a time where that was like a controversial thing. It was a time where folks were nervous and afraid of taking bold stances for clean energy or bold stances for our like literal earth. Um, I guess it's still happening, but we have been learning from folks around the country who've been pushing this no police money and politics pledge. Color for Change has one, like many orgs have them around the country. And the concept is simple. We want politicians, candidates to pledge not to take police money. And that, that doesn't mean you're pledging not to work with them. It's actually saying you're gonna work with them 
knowing that you're actually held accountable by the people and not by their dollars. It's a simple thing. It's you literally go to nopolicemoney.org and you you fill out a form and, and you make that commitment. It's funny in 2020, the folks who helped design this concept, they went around and they talked to elected officials who were putting up their Black Lives Matter signs and were like doing all the things to show that they care about black people. And they would not take a pledge not to take police money. Like they thought it was absurd. And I'm not just saying white politicians, black ones, like so many people actually said no to us because they were afraid of the perception or they were afraid to actually take a bold stance and to say, you know what, I'm going to hold you accountable and I'm going to listen to the people because I actually serve the community. I'm super proud that in the primaries um, in May of this year, we had 22 politicians who were running for office who took the pledge. And like very quickly, like we didn't have to... Um, go back and forth and try to convince them. There were folks who definitely said no. Um, we are, uh, because we're able to endorse candidates, that was a criteria. And I would never forget, I will not say this person's name, but there was a candidate that we like rocked with, that we were so excited about, that aligned with us. But this candidate was too afraid to take the pledge and was afraid of the backlash and didn't see this as an opportunity to build from a place of trust and accountability. And we had to say no. We were like, we're not going to endorse you. Um, we wish you well. We don't wish any ill towards you, but we're interested in building with folks who are interested in building with us. So I think it's a simple pledge. I don't think it's controversial. It shouldn't be in the year that we are in, but it is a commitment to to put your budget, put your resources where your mouth is and stop pretending like you care about black lives when in reality you're actually willing to be bought off by folks who, you know, believe otherwise. You actually took the answer right out of my mouth with your antidote because the main thing that I always tell people is the black community, we have to make demands of our politicians. They come to us when they need us and we don't have anything that we're asking them for. You know, like straight up, you have to make a demand and you say, and if you're not going to meet that demand, we're going to go somewhere else. We have options. Somebody's going to somebody's going to meet this demand, but we have to make it. And what you guys did was is you made a demand and 22 people met the demand. That's yeah. that's beautiful. Like, like I said, you took the answer right out of my mouth with your antidote and that fills me with hope because that's what I've been saying for so long is we got to We have to make demands of our politicians and then hold them accountable. If we, if we come to the table with no demands, then they're gonna get over on us every time. Frederick Douglass said that. He said, power concedes nothing without a demand. Yeah. Like, uh, there there's go, been organizers Fred. who've added the word an organized demand. Like, you have to make a demand or you're just gonna end up following, you know, the will of an individual person. And that's not democracy. And just like you said, you know, no foundation without roots, right? No tree without roots, how are you gonna do it? So I totally get that. And I'm that way too. It's like, okay, great. You come to me for my endorsement. Why? What? I, I don't speak for the whole black community. I'm not a, we're not a monolith. Come on, really? Boom. So why are you coming to me for my endorsement? If you come to me, that means you're, I'm, you're thinking that the black community says, well, Marcus did it. You did it. No, come actually talk to us. Um, I do give some of the candidates who are running for governor when they came to Ben, they made it a point to actually come and speak to the father's group. And I don't like to use the term hot seat, but they were, they were. <laughs> it was uncomfortable for them. Oh my God, yes. Yeah, like, no, you do not have a meeting you can run from. It is the evening, you're in Ben, you don't have anywhere to go, you'll be all right. Yeah. So you, you drove over here, you finna take this heat. So, you know, don't make promises and stuff, like I said, but then all of a sudden, okay, really quick. So my big thing is this, don't come to me and say, I can run Republican or Democrat, and then if I run either one, that's going to get me elected, but then turn around and go, okay, the work still needs to be done. Yes, I'm elected now, but where's the work? Well, you got to come tell us about the issues. No, I shouldn't. You should be coming to us and telling here's what's up. And then what happens is now that other people are running, you want my endorsement. For what reason? You, you haven't come to the black community since you got elected the last time. So why should I, why should I endorse you? That's crazy. I said, but I'm not going to put myself out there like that to do that. So unfortunately you start not getting invited to stuff, mm -hmm. right? Or, well, we don't want to hear your voice anymore. Like, wait a minute, calm down a little bit. You needed me to get you votes, but now you can't do what I need you to do. Hmm. So one-sided. 
Always, in so many ways. So it's, it's tough sometimes. Really, really tough. And I bet when you get hot again, they're going to want you. Oh, every two years, they want you. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you said something earlier about understanding that the young people are watching you. And I always think about that, especially when it comes to, you know, black issues campaigns, progressive issues campaigns, you know, progressive black candidates, how important it is for especially young people to be able to see that, to see those people coming from a place of strength. Let's mm -hmm. use the Lake Oswego example here. If I never see a black person in a position of authority in LO get on a stage and say, it is Lake No Negro No More because I am here, while people are actively organizing <laughs> against anti-blackness and telling the same horror stories that I dealt with when I was going to school. I graduated in 2007, mind you. I still work with these students. It's literally the same thing. But when I see people getting on these stages and saying these things that are for just being real, they think they're speaking to just a white audience. They don't feel accountable to the black people there. They don't feel accountable to black constituents, the needs. They can say whatever wild thing that might make the white people comfortable or entertain them, and it's cool. And I know the young people are watching that, and like, there's some people who they see that, they know what's going on, and it's disheartening. It, it stalls engagement, it stunts engagement. Then there's all the young people, there's all the probably more people who see that, who don't pick up on what's going on, who just assume that's how we're supposed to move. And it creates this cycle of taking that internalized white supremacy that people don't even realize is internalized white supremacy. And that's how we just assume we're supposed to move in these spaces. And then that's what we teach the next generation, teach all the non-black people that's okay, that's how it's okay to treat us. Hey, it's Adam. Here's the audience questions. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Ilana J. Wilson, and I use she or pronouns, and I'm the executive director of Next Up. I, um, thank you. Um, and I also grew up here, um, and I grew up differently than, than you did, right? Um, not necessarily empowered by the blackness, right? Um, and so something that I've really been struggling with, and I'm curious, because there's so much beautiful expertise in this room, how do you convince black people who've been here for generations, oppressed for generations, uh, how, how do you get them to believe that we have political power as we've never seen that actually come to fruition? People are particularly skeptical when they're from here. I definitely know that I was raised to be skeptical because we've never seen it. So how do you work coming from other places, coming from a place where you've been empowered your whole life? How do you support people who have not and who are black? Mm. Mm. That's a really good question because I'm from East Oakland, California, and it's like the home of the revolution. So coming here from there was really difficult for me because people aren't like that. And the way that, the way that I bridge that gap is I talk about home a lot. I tell them how it is. Like I talk about the good old days. I talk about the good things that we did and how, you know, we can do that here if we have the support of people like you. And I understand that it hasn't always been great and people always, haven't always kept their word, but I'm not people. I'm here because I care and I wanna make things better for you. And you can make things better for me by helping and believing in me. And that's what I like to tell people. Okay, organizer, I see you. <laughs> With the script. Um, it's, ooh, I, I'm not from here. I'm from Cincinnati. It's, it's interesting. I grew up in a city that was nearly, you know, almost majority black. I think now city proper might be just like tearing on majority. You know, we were able to pick and choose our black leaders. We were able to push back in a different way. When I'm here, I like to lead with listening. I like to lead with trying to understand the different conditions and not minimize the, the hard work and the resilience of Oregon. Like black people are not supposed to be here and yet they're here. Like that is a miracle and that took hard work and dedication. 
And then I like to go with visioning. I, I believe in black radical imagination. I believe in asking what would the world look like for you if it was different and starting to co-create that vision and then have a conversation about the tools that we could do or we could work towards to get there. So for me, it's visioning and listening first. Oh. So for me, like you're saying, I'm coming from right outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. My grandmother was a civil rights activist. She did all the voter registration for the state of North Carolina for all the black people. Okay. So she used to have, uh, you know, the governor and senators all sitting in her backyards eating our barbecue. I see my grandmother have paved, all of a sudden have dirt roads, paved roads, lights, different things that we needed in the community. She made sure we got. Mm. So growing up in that environment as a kid, you had to understand what I go through. So the way I approach it is this. And I tell a lot of people, especially in Central Oregon, because a lot of us are not from Central Oregon. A lot of the places we lived before, we weren't the cultivators of what was necessary when it came to culture. But now that we're the ones who have to generate it, you got to be prideful in that and understanding what your, what your responsibility is. So that's what I try to do in terms of approaching it. Yeah. As a, as a media person, as a writer, as a storyteller, I find it's important, one, to share, make sure people know the history of black people in the state. Mm -hmm. But it's not just, you know, yes, there's exclusion laws and merely, you know, surviving that in itself is big. But there's black history makers, black organizations mm. that, have, that are out here that have been doing the work. There's legacies of that. Thank you for the conversation tonight. My name is Charles Fennell. I work with OHSU, the Layton Center for Aging and Alzheimer's Disease Research. Um, and I'm brand new to Portland. I moved here about a month ago from Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, yeah. So, but I'm not new to uh, DEI work. I went to school at Appalachian State University in rural North Carolina. So um, I have so many things to say, but I'm going to try to keep it simple. I know how it can feel and how demotivating and disparaging it can be to be in a rural space. Um, and to do work in a rural space. Like we spoke, of, or you spoke about earlier, um, coming to different spaces, radicalizing you in one way or another. Like I was at, app, you know, my dress, my do-rag, A shirt on, going to class, getting the A's just to, because I wanted to use my elbows and show where excellence can exist and that we can exist and open a path. But I know that doing that and similar to, I believe, Alana's question, um, and seeing how people can get burnt out and you doing the work can get burnt out. I wanted to, so I came to Oregon because of the Sharp Walking Study. I don't know if you are familiar, but it's kind of an intersection between a community celebratory approach and with black people specifically and health and health advocacy. So that kind of reinvigorated a lot of my passion and um, found me on the other side of the, the country. But I wanted to ask you all about what informs your passions and what keeps you motivated to do the work that you do. The community for me, just getting out, talking to black people about black issues. That's what reinvigorates me every single time. Because I could talk to I could talk to 10 black people and hear 10 different things and they all tug on my heartstrings. So it's not hard for me to it's not hard for me to stay motivated because every single day I find motivation. What motivates me and what pulls on my heartstrings is seeing those students that look on their face when it clicks. Mm. But at the same time too, my grandmother said it best and I always give her credit for this and she was phenomenal. She goes, young man, your service is to the people, always to the people. I was taught that a long time ago, so that's what pulls. Uh, it's just, it's ingrained in me and it's just, it's just innate that I just want to make sure the kids feel good and they have agency. I'm serious. I love seeing them smile and like seeing their light shine. And that's the only other, I'm serious. That's what that motivates me every day. I'll be brief and be honest that this work is hard and I'm not always motivated to be honest. There are times where it feels like you're pushing towards something that is never gonna change, so to speak, or you're talking to a legislator who refuses to even see your humanity and you have to still try to convince them to do something you need them to do. Um, in those moments, I try to uh, connect with my comrades, with my people, with 
the folks that are also in this struggle and understand that liberation takes work and um, and the opposition wants us to quit like they want us and they're trying like crazy to tell us to stop. So I try to rest up, talk to my folks and find strength in community. Mm. So I think my answers are most of the same. Like it is community definitely for me. Building with people is huge. Doing some work with young people, you know, like you said, that, that aha moment, those never get old. Mm -hmm. And then I guess a very small, and I want to emphasize, tiny sliver of it is just pettiness. <laughs> yes. You're in these rooms, you're dealing with just systems that you know could be better, that are like easily fixable. You're dealing with mediocre people, mm. proudly mediocre people. And it just doesn't sit right with me to lose to them. Mm -mm. I don't care how long it takes. <laughs> if they're on my deathbed, but I know I got that dent in. Yes. Yeah, that, that's part of it. <laughs> there it is. Bruce, I love you for that, man. I love you. Bruce Poinsett is a journalist, educator, and community organizer. Joy Elise Davis is the president and director of Imagine Black. Marcus Legrand is the Afrocentric program coordinator and professor of business and human development at Central Oregon Community College. Keith Jenkins is the field and organizing director at Imagine Black. If you like this episode, tune into the next show in our series on organizing, which explores intergenerational organizing in Oregon hosted by Roselle Medina. You can find links to the full conversations, as well as links to our guests' work on our website at oregonhumanities.org. If someone you know thinks about organizing, consider sharing this episode with them. It means a lot to us. The Detour is produced by Kieran Bond. Dave Friedlander is our editor. Ben Waterhouse, Karina Brisky, and Alexandra Powell-Bugden are our assistant producers. I'm Adam Davis. Thank you for listening. See you next time. <laughs>